Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Welcome uh, to the Institute of World Politics on this very wet uh, day. Um, our speaker arrived half drowned, but uh, hopefully he'll uh, be able to get past that. I know he will. He's an accomplished speaker. Um, I'm assuming what's drawing you out is, is the realization on the part of all of you the importance of U.S. policy, uh, especially over the long term toward East Asia, China, and, and, and the whole of East Asia. Um, Mike's book, for those of you that haven't read it, is, is a must-read. I think it's a definitive, definitive history of U.S. Uh, policy toward and grand strategy toward East Asia since the end of the American Revolution. And um, one of the things that makes it unique is it successfully it focuses on the fact that the roots of American policy toward the region go back much, much further than the, uh, than the um, Secretary of State Hay, McKin uh, President McKinley, et cetera, era that most people point to. Um, Mike has a bio that, uh, that is impressive. Um, he's not just a pretty face with a PhD. He also has a black belt. Um, <laughs> There's something I wanted to bring out. It's unique. We don't usually have speakers that have black belts. Um, Mike is the uh, Senior Vice President for Asia and the Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, and the Director of Asia Studies at the Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. He served on the staff of the NSC from 2001 to 2005, first as Director for Asian Affairs with responsibility for Japan, Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, and then as Special Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs and Senior Director for Asia with responsibility for East and South Asia. Before joining the NSC, he was a Senior Fellow for East Asian Security at the Council on Foreign Relations, Director of the Edwin Reischauer Center, and the Foreign Policy Institute and Assistant Professor at SICE across town here at Johns Hopkins, a Research Staff Member at the Institute for Defense Analyses and Senior Advisor on Asia in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. We've got a couple of uh, old colleagues and likes that are here in the room as well. I'm sure they're uh, looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Without further ado, let me introduce Mike Green. Please join me in welcoming him. Um, thanks. It's, uh, it's, it's great to be here. This is a beautiful building. Um, and then I swim up um, from CSIS. Don't worry about the black belt. My black belt is an Eido, which is sword. I'm completely unarmed and defenseless. Um, don't normally carry a sword around with me. Um, so this was a book uh, that um, I started uh, shortly after I left the, the Bush administration. I was uh, uh, last in the administration as the special assistant to the president, senior director for Asia on the National Security Council staff. And my um, remit was East Asia and South Asia. So I had everything from Pakistan over to uh, Hawaii. And um, uh, if you've been in government um, as an academic or uh, being an academic as a government official, um, you, you find yourself um, uh, coming out of government and interested in things that most academics aren't interested in. <laughs> and, and you realize, you know, what, what, what scholars should really be focusing on is A. Um, but also, um, you sometimes find that in government, people are not connecting dots um, because, as many of you would know from being in government, you're going from crisis to crisis. And so, you come out sometimes thinking um, it would really help policymaking if we had a better understanding of connections C, D, and E. And so I left uh, the NSC, and like, um, like many political scientists who went into government, I came out and decided what I really wanted to write was history. So my friend and colleague Victor Cha uh, came out of the NSC and wrote a history of American uh, alliance formation in Korea. Um, and that was not uncommon, um, because political science uh, tries too hard to be predictive, uh, to narrow variables down to in ways that are dangerous for policymaking, to quantify things in ways that narrow your vision and, and cause you to miss contingencies and outcomes that are, um, that are possible but hard to quantify. Um, and so I came out of the NSC wanting to write something based on the experience I had doing policy and strategy, um, uh, not um, uh, attracted to some of the political science question, questions, really attracted to the idea of where did our strategy come from? Uh, I worked on the national security strategies in 2002 and 2005 for President Bush. I wrote um, 
our classified um, Asia strategy, which I got permission to partly declassify for this book. Um, and earlier in the Pentagon, I worked on what was called the Nye Initiative in the late 90s uh, on our strategy towards alliances. And even as an intern in USTR, I wrote USTR's Japan strategy uh, when I was a student. It, USTR is not very strategic, you can tell, because they had an intern write the strategy. Um, so I wanted to come out and, 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 and understand and explain why we articulate certain principles about our interests in Asia, whether it's de democratic values or trade or alliances or sea lanes, um, where it came from, because we included all of this in the strategic and policy work we did, but we just assumed it was so. And, um, and but I wanted to do so as a historian, but I'm, but I'm a political scientist, so I wanted to fuse the best of political science and history. I wanted to have a set of questions and a framework uh, that had the rigor of political science, um, but not, um, but not the, the kind of straitjacket. And I was inspired to do this book by a number of people, um, historians and political scientists, um, and uh, went to the University of Texas, you know, William Bowden, I'm sure, uh, for Professor Bowden's um, seminar he runs at UT Austin, where they bring together authors who are writing political science and history. The first night they have a dinner debate, which is always fun. Um, so the year I went, the, uh, the political <coughs> scientists said, we call what historians do trivia. And so it's basically smack talk back and forth. The historians all cheer for their guys, the political scientists cheer for their guys. The hybrid people like me are kind of confused. So the political scientists said, what historians do, that's just streams of trivia. And then the historians said, what political scientists do, boiling things down to two variables, that's, that's what we call talking to small, small children. So they went back and forth and finally agreed that the best uh, approach is probably some kind of hybrid, which is exactly what I was trying to do. And then with the 2016 election, some of these fundamental questions about um, American commitment in Asia, about why we have alliances, about why we have forward presence, were suddenly tossed in the air um, and um, questioned by our closest allies and our worst enemies. So it, it, I, I finished the book uh, with the Obama administration, but it, it, it took on a new importance for me personally, I think got some attention because it did try to go back to the fundamentals of why we're in Asia. So that's some background for how and, and why I wrote the book. I, um, it's for sale on paperback outside, by the way, the paperback edition just came out in, uh, in English, and if you want to read it in Korean, Chinese, or Japanese, it's also available. I am not getting a response from the clicker. Yeah, the key. Um, the, um, the, the challenge with writing uh, what I wanted to write, which is a, a history explaining the evolution of American strategic thought, is that um, a lot of historians and a lot of policymakers and a lot of journalists would challenge the question of whether the U.S. or any country is capable of a grand strategy to begin with. And when you look through the history and the writings of um, scholars about grand strategy in the United States, 95% say that the United States is not capable of grand strategy. Henry Kissinger wrote that America is not capable of grand strategy because we're impatient, we let democratic values get in the way. Um, de Tocqueville, uh, when he traveled in the United States in the early 19th century, examining this new small r Republican form of government, wrote about grand strategy. He was writing at the time of the Concert of Europe and sort of the height of grand strategy when Metternich and Castlereagh um, found diplomatic ways to resolve conflicts and maintained an equilibrium, a stable balance of power. It was in some ways, Kissinger wrote his dissertation on it, the, the, the high art, the high point, the model of grand strategy based on uh, diplomacy um, and um, exquisite maintenance of uh, balance of power. I just need to know how to click. There may be something happen on the computer. This is not essential. There we go. Okay, which one do I push? Um, should just be the left. Okay. So. And if it doesn't. Do I have to aim at it? I guess it was working yesterday. Oh, that, okay. Oh, so I'll just use the stroller. That's the cover. That's a painting I found uh, of the um, uh, the first American ship to travel to Asia, 1784. It was called the Empress of China in the middle. Um, here, um, uh, 
commission built, crewed by Robert Morris, who was the banker for George Washington, a Philadelphia merchant, one of the founding fathers, who uh, was broke um, and had to make a lot of money fast uh, because he was the main lender for the Continental Army. And he had heard of trade at Canton. Um, he outfitted this ship, the Empress of China. Um, it stowed ginseng from what's now Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Um, the first American diplomat sailed to China, and this is a painting of it arriving in what's now Guangzhou with the Chinese junks blocking it and all the European ships on either side firing uh, a salute but watching suspiciously this newest entry into the game in Asia, 1784. The book actually begins in 1783. As Paul said, the history of our engagement in Asia and strategic thinking about Asia is much deeper and, and much uh, longer standing than many people realize. So the challenge was how to describe grand strategy when um, the Jokeville, as I said, argued um, that the Americans were not capable of the kind of grand strategy that um, kept met a Castlereagh, Metternich, uh, later Bismarck, um, practiced in Europe to maintain the peace, to maintain a balance of power. Because he said, basically, as a country, we had ADD. Uh, well, the term wasn't invented yet. Americans can't persevere in a fixed design, can't work out its execution in spite of obstacles, can't keep secrets, can't await consequences. I've been in government, guilty as charged. Um, but Richard Betts at Columbia University has a, has a formula that explains why uh, democracies and the United States are capable of grand strategy. Trotsky has a simpler version. Trotsky said, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Any great power in a competitive environment has to have uh, strategium. Um, Betts captured it well. He said, the logic of strategy depends on clarity of preferences, explicitness of calculation, consistency. Democratic competition, the way our founding fathers built our government, was designed to prevent centralization. The word strategy comes from the Greek strategos, from the commander. Our commander-in-chief has a lot of authority, but we design checks and balances to not have a king. That gets in the way of the kind of elegant grand strategy practiced in the concert of Europe that, that Metternich uh, uh, practiced, that de Tocqueville thought the Americans were not capable of. But Betts goes on to argue, Bob Art and others, uh, that the American way of strategy is really more of a meta-process. It's a meta-process. Think tanks, universities, Congress, um, public intellectuals, the president, it's, it's, it's more of a kind of a, of a scrum. <laughs> um, and it uh, does not often result from uh, the pen of people like me writing parts of the national security strategy. Much of the US government ignores the national security strategy, um, ignores the commander-in-chief, ignores the strategos. Uh, but there is, historically, an American way of strategy. And you see it when you start looking over the arc of history. <clears throat> a lot of diplomatic historians look into, into individual negotiations and see all the human foibles and the tragedy and the mistakes. But if you look over the larger arc of history, you can see some very clear patterns um, in American strategy in Asia. You can also see, I would argue, a, a pretty good track record. Um, the United States became the most powerful country in Asia with relatively little power and maintained its position even as our power in relative terms declined. In 1950, we had half of global economic output. Um, in, in 1971, we had a quarter of global economic output. But our position in Asia, even after Vietnam, even after the relative decline in American economic power, our position in Asia stayed dominant. Uh, why? Nixon opened to China. We, were, we played these games of balance of power. Um, and so we're not so bad, after all. We're not so bad. Um, you could come up with a pretty daunting list of American strategic mistakes in Asia, uh, especially intelligence failures, uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, the Korean, North Korean attack in June 1950, the Chinese attack across the Yalu six months later, uh, Vietnam. Um, but on the whole, the U.S. position in Asia is quite strong. Um, so my argument was, if we're going to create a grand strategy to deal with the rise of China, which may be the most important geopolitical challenge we face, we're not going to build a grand strategy by pretending to be, although we should study them, we're not going to build a grand strategy by pretending to be Castlereagh or Metternich or Clausewitz. We're going to have to do it our way, because strategy is an organic extension of our values, of our dysfunctional uh, politics, of our checks and balances. Um, and has in itself strengths. So that's the premise. Um, when you look back, and I thought uh, I would be, because I taught this stuff at SICE before I went into government, I thought I'd 
do a little short historical chapter that sort of captured briefly the period from 1784 to um, maybe the open door notes, John Hay uh, at the end of the 19th century, maybe the end of World War II when we really developed strategy. But the more I looked into the letters of Thomas Jefferson, the Federalist Papers, uh, the more I found uh, some of the same debates that we had when I was in the Pentagon in the 90s and in the White House. Um, different technology, but geography doesn't change that much. Values in our Constitution are pretty fundamental. Um, and I started the book in 1783 because that was um, the year that Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to George Rogers Clark on the frontier uh, of what was then um, sort of eastern Tennessee, um, arguing, uh, warning that the British, that our spies in London had informed uh, the Continental Congress that the British were raising money for an expedition to cross what's now Canada and find passage to the Northwest. Um, and Jefferson was determined that we not let the British, uh, after the war, close us off from the Pacific. Um, now, of course, that was about building a continent from coast to coast, but it was also about the Pacific. Jefferson knew about the Pacific. So did George Washington, so did Robert Morris. And they knew about the Pacific for a variety of reasons, but the most vibrant description they received was from a, a dropout from, I think, Dartmouth grads. Um, so a, a, a dropout from Dartmouth uh, named John Ledyard, who in the 1770s for a spring break, this was, I mean, I remember spring break when I went to college, it was nothing like this. He cut down a tree, carved it in a canoe, paddled on the Connecticut River, and joined the Royal Marines. Um, and uh, yeah, my spring break was not like that. Um, uh, we just went to, I went to Kenyon College, we just drove to Denison and drank beer, but Ledger knew how to party. Um, he ended up on the flagship of Captain Cook as Royal Marine, so he traveled to the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii, he knew about Canton, he knew about the trade winds, he knew about the, the trade with the Hong merchants, um, he saw Captain Cook killed in Hawaii, um, he came back uh, and jumped ship in New York Harbor uh, as the American Revolution began. And uh, went to the founding fathers and said, our future is in the Pacific. Um, and so I began the book in 1783 because Jefferson wrote about the British threat to our access to the Pacific, but with the full knowledge of the possibilities of Canton, and I traced Jefferson and other founding fathers. To be clear, we're talking about um, half a dozen, a dozen white men, mostly from Boston, Salem, Baltimore, um, New York, mostly uh, merchants, um, and not Southern agrarians, with the exception of Jefferson. Uh, but it was the seed of strategy, as I put it in the first chapter. And that's the leitmotif for American strategy throughout the book. And the leitmotif is, since Jefferson, um, and his letter to George Rogers Clark, the US has clumsily, sometimes haltingly, but usually successfully, maintained a favorable balance of power in the Pacific, has prevented the Pacific Ocean for becoming a conduit for threats to the US, uh, and turned it into a conduit for American values, missionaries, trade, and security to move further west. Now, that is a pretty strong leitmotif um, throughout American history. And it's not just Jefferson. Daniel Webster, Secretary of State under President Tyler, <coughs> articulated in 1841 uh, the Tyler Doctrine. So everyone's heard of the Monroe Doctrine which was the 1820s, which was mostly about Latin America, but there was a corollary to the Monroe Doctrine warning the Russians not to move south from Alaska into what's today Oregon. John Quincy Adams, the Secretary of State, threatened war on the Russians if they moved south, um, and they backed off. Uh, could, could we have waged war against the Russians in what's today Washington State? No way. In the 1820s, no way. But Jefferson, excuse me, John Quincy Adams understood the balance of power in Europe. He'd been ambassador in eight different European courts. He knew that if he threatened war, it would upset the concert of power. And the British and French and Russians would all have to choose sides. So they all backed down. Very smart. Um, Daniel Webster had a corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which President Tyler announced in the State of the Union in 1841, I think, um, saying that the Monroe Doctrine extends to Hawaii, because the British and French were beginning to use it as a, um, we knew about coal, we knew about steamships, they were beginning to use it. Um, and could we have defeated the Royal Navy in 1842 in the Pacific? No way. But again, he understood the balance of power and the American role in tilting uh, that 
Um, there are many examples of successful American grant strategies. John Hay, uh, the famous open door notes, um, designed to keep China open, prevent other powers from dominating. Um, Theodore Roosevelt at the Treaty of Portsmouth um, brokered the Russo-Japanese War. He was happy that the Japanese were beating the Russians because he was worried about the Slavic threat. But then the Japanese started winning too much. Was he going to wage a war on Japan? No. He offered peace, won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, as he put it to, in a letter to um, Alfred Thayer Mohan, um, we want the Japanese and Russians locked together, exhausted, like two boxers who can't fight anymore. He won the Nobel Peace Prize, but it was a very cynical balance of power way of thinking about things. Our post-war security treaties, um, shown here, um, were a, an essential move to um, keep the frontier of American security, the forward defense line, forward in the Pacific after World War II by locking in security relationships, especially with Japan, which I'll come back to. These are examples of Cold War and post-Cold War balance of power strategies that have generally been successful. I'm going to get to, this is a report card, I'm going to get to the needs improvement section in a moment. <laughs> um, but this is, this is the, what we do well. Uh, Nixon's opening to Mao, to China, in 1971, fundamentally reconfigured the balance of power in Asia to compensate for um, Vietnam and the relatively significantly uh, decreased relative American share of global economic power. Um, Bill Clinton, uh, meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Ryutaro Hashimoto in April 1996. Um, Clinton had a terrible grand strategy at first. Uh, uh, everything was important. Uh, we're going to pull back. We're going to make others pay for it. It was chaotic. But by the mid-90s, Joe Nye, who was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, uh, made the case successfully that we needed our alliances after the Cold War, even without the Soviet threat, because of China. Um, that strategy, the so-called Nye Initiative, I worked on as a young PhD student and then in the Pentagon. That strategy was embraced by the Bush administration. I was hired into the Bush administration and the NSC to keep working on this strengthening of the US-Japan alliance because of uncertainty about China capabilities and intentions. And then Bush, of course, extended it to India with the um, 2005 um, strategic agreement with Manmohan Singh of India um, to full out the playbook of US partners and allies to maintain a stable balance of power. And Obama, although he um, had a variety of impulses uh, strategically, ultimately, uh, I think, deserves credit for the so-called pivot to Asia, which you've probably heard of. Very unpopular in the Middle East and Europe. Generally, not a good label for your foreign policy. Say we're pivoting away from someplace. Um, uh, fine with the diplomats in Tokyo and Canberra and Bangkok. Not so popular in uh, Riyadh or uh, Warsaw. So the branding was bad. But 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 like a lot of Obama's foreign policy strategies, um, it was 90% branding. Um, the substance, when you look at it, was important because what Obama did was really he pivoted to Southeast Asia. He re-engaged in Southeast Asia. The U.S.-Japan alliance was shored up in Clinton. India partnership and more U.S.-Japan-India-Australia cooperation under Bush. Obama filled in the area he knew best growing up in Indonesia where the Chinese were starting to push for a revisionist uh, uh, a change in the balance of power in Asia, Southeast Asia. And Obama, and a lot of Southeast Asia diplomacy, as Woody Allen would say, is just showing up. And Obama showed up a lot, so did Hillary Clinton. With a balance of power strategy in, in mind, and this is Rex Tillerson announcing the free and open <coughs> Indo-Pacific strategy at CSIS last October. And we can come back to this in the Q&A, but the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy is the Trump administration's brand for their Asia strategy. It, it has some really strong strategic elements, and it is very much about maintaining a balance of power uh, in what the national security strategy and national defense strategy have accurately labeled uh, uh, an environment in which China and Russia are pursuing revisionist approaches to weaken American alliances and power. But it's not new. Obama's pivot wasn't new. Bush's strengthening of Japan and India was not new. It was a broader consensus uh, about maintaining a balance of power, particularly because of China. We woke up to China 20 years ago. So pretty decent strategery, as we used to say in the Bush White House. Um, but going back to de Tocqueville, we're Americans. Um, we have a divided system of government. We're impatient. We have a very pluralistic foreign policy process. As Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore used to say, Americans think that foreign policy in Asia is like watching a video. 
that you can pause in Asia and go do other stuff, and when you come back, you can hit play and nothing will have changed, but things change. We have our challenges, but there, there, there are five in particular in the book I emphasize, all of which, if you've worked on Asia policy, will be familiar to you. You don't have to have done it under John Quincy Adams. You could have done it under Hillary Clinton or George Shultz, and you'd recognize some of these tensions we have. Um, I read and reviewed John Lewis Gaddis's most recent book on grand strategy after I published my book, um, and wish he'd done it beforehand, because one of his main points, and it's a you've probably read it, it's a fantastic book, one of his main arguments is that the essence of grand strategy, ultimately, you have to read through like 600 pages of Thucydides and Mahan and two dozen other intellectuals to get there, but the main point is grand strategy is ultimately about the ability to manage tensions. If you didn't have hard choices, you wouldn't need a strategy. And, and ultimately, and he argues history is the best guide to understand and train your brain to think about how to manage unsolvable tensions. So I don't want you to think that these are easy. These are tensions that result from geography or from our culture or history um, that um, American statesmen and some increasingly stateswomen have struggled with. And it's not like there's one right answer to these sort of very Marxist dialectical tensions I'm about to present. And it's not like there's an easy synthesis. You need to be aware of them and manage them. Um, and we haven't always done that well. So the first tension, which is very evident when you do a critique uh, of American foreign policy in Asia, is um, the tension between America's interests in Asia and our interests as a global power, particularly in Europe, but also in the Middle East. It's hard to do regional strategy uh, towards Asia when uh, the leadership is overwhelmingly Atlanticist and thinks Europe's much more important. Because you'll often have to make trade-offs between Asia and Europe, or increasingly Asia and the Middle East, in terms of resources, priorities, values, allies. And a lot of the mistakes we make in Asia were the consequence of Europe first. So my friend Kurt Campbell wrote a book called The Pivot, a really good book. It often gets paired with mine, and, and people throw their arms up at these Asianists. Kurt concludes that we need to pivot. We need to focus more on Asia. I'm a little more careful about that, because the US is a global power. We have significant interest in Europe and the Middle East. And also because Kurt's not an Asianist, he's a strategic <laughs> guy, I'm an Asianist, I study Japanese and Korean. It's, it's the easiest mistake in the book for students of Asia or the Middle East to say, the solution is give all the resources to my region. Not allowed, we're a global power. So we have to think about this pragmatically and we have to realize that you don't always get the resources you want. And therefore you need a strategic concept so you're employing the resources you have wisely where you know your, your interests. Um, sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't. Um, I have a few examples here of where Europe um, was a priority, but in a way that really skewed our Asia policy unnecessarily. So Woodrow Wilson. Um, Woodrow Wilson's entry into World War I was ultimately, when you read the, the diaries of Colonel House, his national security advisor, about preserving British power. Not British power per se, but Britain uh, was, as Colonel House put it to Wilson, the gyroscope of international relations. That without British power, the international order the Americans depended on would collapse. So There's a recognition we needed that you know, neoliberal order, as we now call it. And um, Wilson was determined above all else to keep Britain from losing and then to force Britain into the League of Nations and a new multilateralism. Um, Europe, Europe, Europe. Uh, who, who was Britain's ally in World War I? Japan. <laughs> what did Japan do? 1915, 21 demands. Japan expanded in Asia as, Europe, as German power collapsed. And the British were not inclined to stop them. Um, the Asia hands in the State Department and the Navy said to Wilson, you have got to stop them. Wilson wouldn't do it. Colonel House wouldn't do it. We've got to keep the British in at all costs. And it extended to the League of Nations where um, the racism, anti-racism clause that Japan proposed in the League of Nations was opposed by the U.S. And part of it was because Wilson was a racist. He was a Virginian, um, uh, you know, not progressive on uh, race at all even for his times in many respects. Part of it was California immigration, but a big part of the reason the U.S. opposed the anti-racism clause, which really set the Japanese against us, was because of Canada and Australia. Um, and Britain needed the Dominions, needed Canada and Australia on board with any post-war settlement. Um, Canadians and Australians don't like to talk about this. 
it was Vancouver, California, and um, New South Wales, some of the most progressive states in our three countries today, but very focused on all white immigration policies at the turn of the century and in the 1920s. So Europe first. Um, FDR and Churchill, um, you know, <coughs> FDR had a famous Europe first strategy. Um, U.S. and British staff talks uh, in, uh, in the years before Pearl Harbor uh, led to an agreement that we would defeat Germany first in the event of a global war, but Japan attacked us. 80% of Americans in Gallup polls and most of the Congress, and of course the U.S. Navy said, go at the Japanese. Even Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was in charge of plans in the uh, Department of the Army, said, go at the Japanese. And, and Roosevelt said, no, we're going to do Europe first. There was a logic to it. Um, the Japanese could be held at the uh, islands, but if Germany knocked out Russia and Britain, we would be liberating Europe from Newfoundland. So there was a definite military and geostrategic logic, but there was also a very strong Atlanticist predisposition. Um, uh, that is, I can't remember, if it's that's Korea. But Dien Bien Phu, Korea. So Korea, um, while we were fighting in Korea, the U.S. Army sent more divisions to NATO than to Korea. The fight in Korea is about stopping the Germans and the Russians in Berlin. Um, Dien Bien Phu, that's when the French surrendered to the Viet Minh in 1954. Who was in charge of U.S. policy towards Indochina in 1954? The Europe Bureau, the Europe Director of the State Department. And the most important priority was keeping the French conservatives in NATO. So uh, Nixon with Brezhnev. So Nixon opened up to China. Brilliant strategic move. It was more Nixon than Kissinger, in my view. But it was designed not only to maintain a balance of power in Asia, it was primarily in Kissinger's mind, and to a significant extent Nixon's, about revitalizing NATO, forcing the Soviets into detente, um, and the Central Front in Europe. And this dilemma um, continues to this day. Obama's pivot, when you look at the actual resources spent in the State Department, there was no change. Uh, when you look at the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy today, um, there's a fight in the Pentagon over the Russia versus China threat, where the resources go. It's not our fault. We're a global power. We're a two-ocean, three-ocean power. But it's a dilemma, and if we don't realize how to manage it, we'll have trouble. Second dilemma, um, within Asia itself, or the second tension, is the question of whether <clears throat> the center of American gravity, uh, or the center of gravity for Asian geopolitics, should be China or Japan. And if you've served in the State Department of East Asia Bureau, um, it's pretty obvious. I speak Japanese. I'm an obvious Japan guy. It's pretty obvious where people tend to go. Um, there's geostrategic logic. McKinder, at the turn of the century, argued that whoever controls the heartland dominates the world. And Mahan, Alfred Thayer Mahan, argued um, at the end of the 19th century that whoever controls the sea lanes would be the dominant power in the world. This debate played in the United States. And the most intense and interesting early example was in the, in the 1850s, early 1850s. So uh, that guy on the left is Humphrey Marshall, an obscure Kentucky cavalry officer. He raised a regiment in the Mexican-American War and a, a Confederate brigade in the Civil War. And in between, uh, he'd been a congressman from Landlock, Kentucky. He raised his hand to be the US ambassador or commissioner to China in the 1850s. Um, the guy on the right is more famous. That's um, Perry. Commodore Perry opened Japan. And that's his flagship. So in 1853, um, during the Taiping Rebellion in China, Humphrey Marshall sent uh, a letter back, tele you know, it took weeks, of course, in those days. It was a lot more fun to be in an embassy in the 1850s, because there was no point in waiting for instructions from Washington. Um, but Humphrey Marshall wrote back, as the best diplomats do, it's rare, a strategy. Uh, for the United States and Asia. And he argued that in the Taiping Rebellion, the United States, 1853, his U.S. fundamental interest is preserving the integrity of China. Opening China to modernize so it can survive and buy our goods and be our friend, but keeping the British and the Russians especially, but also the French, um, from carving China up in the context of the Taiping Rebellion. And he argued that this small American fleet uh, that was under the command of Commodore Perry in the Western Pacific should be uh, sent up the Pearl River with him on board 
to show the Russians and the British and the French that America was going to stand up for Chinese integrity and to force the celestial emperor, who would not deal with diplomats, to, open, to sign a treaty with the U.S. and uh, open up more to trade. Um, that became John Hayes' open door notes. Um, Mahan, excuse me, before you can Perry went to Japan with orders to open Japan. The U.S. Navy had been fascinated by Japan since the War of 1812 when the first Navy ship went into the Pacific. Mahan, excuse me, I keep doing that, Perry, I say Mahan because Mahan was very influenced by Perry. So Mahan, Perry, uh, sorry, who, who commanded the, the small U.S. flotilla, um, left Humphrey Marshall stranded, early example of Army-Navy cooperation, State Department, Defense Department cooperation, took his fleet, opened up Japan, came back to the United States and gave a series of speeches, which I feature pretty prominently in my book, in New York, Philadelphia in 1856-57, arguing that in the future, the U.S. would be a dominant power in Asia um, if we treated Japan as our partner. Don't Christianize Japan. Japan will modernize. It's more modern than China. We are a maritime power. We need coaling stations. We need like-minded countries who will replicate our form of government over time and show the rest of Asia, especially dark China and India, <clears throat> um, and the Slav. And someday we will need Japan and Dare I say, he argued in New York, the cross of St. George. We will have to set aside our differences with the British, and together with the Royal Navy and a new Japanese Navy, uh, we will preserve uh, the order in the Pacific against the continental threats of the Slavs and the Chinese. It's the Quad. It's the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. It's the current administration's approach. It's Mahan. Mahan argued uh, at the turn of the century that the future of Asia would be stabilized and America's power insured with a U.S. Japan, Britain, and maybe Germany. Why? Uh, um, so you have this China versus Japan, and there's a logic to both. China is the center of Asia. You know, Humphrey Marshall, John Hay were right that if if a whole China is essential for stability in Asia, um, the U.S. is the only major power in the world that has never had a policy to carve up China. Even in 1949, <coughs> we, we did not and could have split China as a matter of policy. Um, on the other hand, there's a definite and very strong, and to me, stronger logic to the Mohanian British maritime view that's very strong in the day. So this is a little pop quiz that some of my students can't do, but this audience probably can do. I um, can't remember if this moves. No, it doesn't. So I'll just point. So I'm going to ask you uh, if you think they are Mohanian, inclined towards maritime alliances, or if they are Mackinder, inclined towards continental and securing our position with China. And in every case, it's very clear, because it's in their memoirs, it's in their classified cables. So George F. Kennedy, uh, Mahan, or how are we going to do this? Um, I'll just ask. Mahan or Mackinder, Japan or China? Japan. Mackinder. China. Oh, come on. <laughs> Japan. Um, you would think that Kennan, the ultimate realist, would be inclined towards China. But, but, he, but, but, but Kennan was about preserving and <coughs> economizing our American power. And he argued the two most important centers of gravity for America in containment were uh, the industrial heartland of Europe and Japan and the island chain. He was very influenced by a, a, a fascinating diplomat who got purged in the McCarthy years in John Peyton Davies, who was a missionary kid uh, who had been General Stilwell's political advisor during the war argued, who is a China hand, who said, we do not want to be pulled into China. And uh, Ken at one point argued that we should annex Taiwan, as he put in a, in, a, in a memo to the Secretary of State, like TR would have done. But he argued, even after the North Korean invasion of Korea, we should get off the peninsula. Stay out of the continent. It's a sucking morass. Um, he wrote a strategy in, in March 1948 in consultation with MacArthur, um, saying that our post-war containment strategy should be the island chain not Korea. When Dean Acheson gave his famous speech in the National Press Club in January 1950, after the fall of China, saying our defense line is here, and he didn't include Korea, that was Kennan's strategy. That was MacArthur's strategy. So, um, very Mahanian. Al Hay. China. Totally. That one's easy. Kissinger's guy. I'll give you a hint, with all respect to my colleagues in the Army. <laughs> Most of the maritime guys, no coincidence, are Navy Marines. Most of the continental guys, many of them are army. So Al Hay, he wrote his memoirs. He got fired uh, uh, by Reagan in part because George Shultz, gave that one away, was more 
uh, implied to Japan that he was too pro-China. Um, John Foster Dulles, uh, Japan, Mahanian. Um, George Schultz, I give that away, U.S. Marine. I interviewed him for my book. Um, he, he, he uh, Mahanian, Japan. Uh, John Kerry. No idea. French. <laughs> Continentalist. I briefed Kerry before. Are we off the record or on the record? Uh, I think this is being live cast. Okay. So. Great man. <laughs> <laughs> I was asked to brief him before his first trip to Japan, China, and Korea, Secretary of State. It was very clear his worldview was that we needed a new model of great power relations, a grand market of China, and that Japan was uh, the greatest um, historic threat to Asia. He said it more colorfully. Um, Howard, William Howard Taft, actually China. Um, uh, Clinton, these guys, the bold guys, and Hillary Clinton, uh, Joe Nye, the Nye Initiative, might very much Japan Armitage. If you know anything about Asian policy, you know Armitage is the godfather of the Japan strategy. Uh, Hillary Clinton also. Hillary Clinton, I also was invited to brief Hillary Clinton for her first talk. And um, uh, many of her, and I worked for McCain's campaign, so it was odd. I thought maybe I was going to be sacrificed at the dinner, ritual sacrifice of uh, you know, one of the opponents. But she invited me because she wanted to continue the Bush policy, which had been her husband's policy by 1996, of, of not containing China, balancing China with a strong Japan and India. Uh, Obama, a little all over the map, here towards Japan, here towards House Power. Donald Trump, no strategy, no history. Uh, both the Japanese and Chinese think he's, uh, he's in play, um, which is a bit of a problem. Second, and I'm gonna have to rifle through these quickly, but You'll have reason to buy the book. Second tension is where we draw our forward defensive line. In any, and Gattis talks about this in his book, drawing a defensive line, knowing where you're willing to fight, is tricky. If you telegraph we're willing to fight here and no further, like Dean Acheson's line in 1950, you invite the other guys to take all the territory on the other side of the line. Uh, if you say, we're going to go this far and even further, you invite your allies to pull you into conflicts you don't want. Um, as uh, I think Gaddis quotes, I forgot, I think he quotes um, Clausewitz, I'm trying to remember who, in his recent book saying, it takes incredible discipline to sit on the wall uh, and hold your fire while you hear the barbarians <laughs> tearing up villages on the other side that don't matter to you. Uh, kind of colorful. So where is that defensive line? I mean, for Jefferson, it was very clear. It was the Pacific Northwest, but with an option to expand. For Tyler, it was Hawaii. For Mahan, Theodore Roosevelt, it was the first island chain, and so in 1898, we took Guam, we took Hawaii, um, for coaling stations, but also to have a forward line against threats to the U.S. from the Pacific, which Mahan wrote about a lot. For Cannon, after World War II, it was the island chain. Then the North Koreans attack uh, in June 1950, and the decision is made, we have to draw the line now in, on the Korean Peninsula, on the continent. Shortly after the end of the Korean War, the French collapse in Vietnam, and Eisenhower has to decide, are we going to draw the line against communism on Indochina, on the continent? Ike is told by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, we have three options. We can nuke them, which Admiral Radford wanted to do. Um, we, can we can deploy ground forces. Um, Ike said, how many ground forces in Indochina? And the Joint Staff said, five to 600,000. And Ike said, no American president is going to send five to 600,000 ground forces to Indochina. It's not that important. We were 13 years later. Third option was let it fall. Dulles said we'll create a multilateral treaty, we'll buy time. Um, you know the rest of the story, we got pulled onto the continent. Um, Nixon's famous Guam doctrine, if you've heard of it, in 1969, was essentially about getting us back to the island chain. Um, and so this is the tug of war, the back and forth. We're in it again. Oh, that's sorry, those are the examples I gave. We're in it again. Because of the Chinese A2AD strategy, uh, the near sea strategy, sometimes it's called, of denying us access to the inside the Fertile Island chain, asserting its own control, and then making it difficult for us to operate from the second island chain, which includes Guam. So you've maybe heard of the famous Guam killing missile. Um, and the Chinese um, island building and airfield building program itself, China Sea, is about that. So the, the question for us. Those are the airfields from their islands. 
So the question for us is, now that the South China Sea is contested, do we fight? So a big debate right now in the Congress and in the administration is, do we make more explicit our security commitment to the Philippines the way we did to Japan? Um, and it's, it's a question of how much risk you're willing to take and how much green light, flashing yellow light, red light you send your allies and your enemies. Um, two more. So Europe first, or Middle East first, Japan versus China. Um, where is that defensive line? Um, and then the third one is trade. Um, these Yankees who opened up China were in favor of a high tariff. They were Hamiltonians. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was a strong advocate of a high tariff and, and, and said those who uh, oppose the tariff are flabby thinkers and lazy. The tariff makes for a bust industry. Um, the, the advocates of uh, expansion in Asia were protectionists. Um, in the 1880s, Alfred Thermohan wrote an essay saying maybe free trade would be better for our strategic position in Asia. Because he noticed in Hawaii, shown here, that when the U.S. signed a reciprocal trade treaty with Hawaii, reducing tariffs, Hawaii became 90% dependent on the U.S. for trade. And through trade, we squeezed out the Japanese, the British, and the French. Um, so in, if you study international relations theory, there are two theories of how trade is handled strategically. One is relative gains. You try to get more than the other guy. If you have little kids, you can test this. Um, Alexander, I say to my son when he was five or six, you can have three cookies and your little sister gets three cookies, or you can have two cookies and she gets no cookies. Two cookies, <laughs> that's relative gains. If you have small children or grandchildren, it works till they're about 10. Um, and the US trade policy has historically often had that feature. The other theory is hegemonic stability, which is Krasner and others at Stanford. And that argues what Mahan saw, that if you open your market, you create dependencies that multiply your power and reinforce your dominance. And words I would never use in the Bush administration, but I say as a scholar. Um, and in the post-war period, um, our policy has been hegemonic stability. We have open markets to, to grow, but to cement rules and an order in Asia that, that, that we benefit from, economically and strategically. Um, in the early post-war period, there was no difference between relative gains and hegemonic stability. Um, we were opening up, breaking open, the British imperial system, the Japanese Great Asian, Asian Coast Prosperity Sphere, the French colonies. We were busting open India, Indonesia, Australia, trade and investment. So our support for free trade uh, was both hegemonic stability, imposing, if you will, an American or Anglo-American system of rules, and relative gains, because all of our companies were just booming. And understandably, as these countries started to grow, first Japan, Korea, um, the relative gains arguments came back. So we've had this tension between protectionism and free trade for a long time. The free traders have always won in the end until TPP, um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which both Clinton and Trump opposed. Um, any Asia hand will tell you we took an enormous hit in terms of influence and credibility by not doing TPP. Um, any trade negotiator, except in the current administration, would tell you we have more leverage in these multilateral agreements like TPP, because it's about rulemaking, than we do in bilateral. But this president wants bilateral. So we are, uh, we are stuck on this one. 60% um, of Americans in polls support TPP, 60% support free trade. Um, but the politics in Washington on this one, and in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, are really messy. And uh, it's not clear how it will come out. Um, skip a bit. The last one, um, that's a cool chart I may come back to. The last one is, um, is uh, democracy. And democracy has part been part of our foreign policy, but the question is, to what end? So the early American diplomats, the first diplomats sent to Guangzhou, were ordered by the State Department not to tell the Chinese that we were a republic, because it would freak out the Celestial Emperor. They were told to tell the Chinese, we're anti-imperialist. Unlike the British, who you've seen, who look like us and sound like us, we are against imperialism, and we secured our own self-determination. So you should trade with us. The British, they want to make you a colony. Um, so early on, our democratic values, what do they mean? And there were two basic elements. One was the idea that 
we stand for self-determination. Um, Jefferson, Mahan, others who thought about the Pacific and the Northwest and Asia, Perry, they all wrote that we want like-minded republics to take form in the Pacific Northwest, in Japan and elsewhere. We don't do colonies, but if they're self-governing republics, they will be inclined to be our friends and they will be more able to resist imperialism from the European powers. Um, but the other viewpoint, represented by Thomas Paine, a bit more radical, was, no, our mission is to make societies more just. That's what the American Revolution was about, making societies more just, the, 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 the best form of government possible. Um, but there was a strategic logic to that, too, because if you have unjust uh, societies and governments, they are not going to be as resilient. They're going to be more uh, vulnerable. Um, the first real debate on this that was intense was in the 1840s in the context of the Opium Wars. So the guy on the top is Caleb Cushing, who was a senator from Massachusetts and became uh, eventually the commissioner in China, the ambassador. And the guy on the bottom is a cranky old John Quincy Adams who was in the house, also from Massachusetts. So in the context of the Opium Wars, they gave speeches on the floor of the House and in the Senate and in Massachusetts at the Massachusetts Historical Society about the Opium Wars. And um, Caleb Cushing said, I'll, I'll spare you all the old 19th century English, um, I hope the, the, the British lose. I hope the Chinese win because I can't, because the British are trying to impose imperialism we stand for governments determining their own future. John Quincy Adams said, I hope the British win because the Chinese, not being a Christian nation, meaning, meaning they don't follow the rule of law, are not open and are unjust. Um, we've had this debate again and again and again, and we're having it today about some of the um, leaders in Asia, one of them's gone, Duterte, um, uh, that's the former Malaysian Prime Minister, Aung San Suu Kyi. Um, this administration has not figured this out. Um, I'm going to spare you those. The bottom line is that um, when we've gotten it right, we've integrated them. George Shultz confronted, in the 1980s, expanding Soviet influence in Asia. Um, and in the Philippines, he had Marcos. And in Korea, he had uh, Chun Doo-hwan. Um, authoritarians in societies where protests were going against the government, where communism would take advantage of it, the Soviets would take advantage of it. Reagan, and one of my predecessors at Georgetown, Gene Kirkpatrick, argued they may be sons of bitches, but there are sons of bitches. That we need to stand by relatively democratic states against communism. George Shultz said, no, we need to support the evolution of democracy, otherwise these states will always be vulnerable to communism. It's a, it's a fair debate. This is not just a ideological debate. It was decided by Schultz when he had uh, Paul Wolfowitz, who was Assistant Secretary for Asia, and Rich Armitage, who was Assistant Secretary of Defense, both testified that the Pentagon and the State Department agreed Marcos and Chinduan had to democratize. Um, and it was brilliant grand strategy. Um, we don't always do it right. We get, we get stuck on this. We're stuck today with China's rise. We were stuck when I was in the government. What do we do about states fighting terrorism? Um, it's a hard problem. These are not easy. So those are the those are the tensions. I'm sorry I started a little late because I was soaking wet um, and had a little trouble getting the uh, slide shot going. I think we have a few minutes, five, ten minutes for yeah, Q&A. Yeah. Um, so there you have it. Yeah. I'm assuming we have quite a few questions. Do you want me to call him folks or do you want to do yeah, it? Yeah, I'll start with him and then you sure. call him. Go ahead. Well, in the thank front. you very yeah. much. Uh, Jeff Steele with the American Legion. One, will these slides be available on the ISW website for review later, sure. or are they on CIS? I, I, have, a, I have a book website, which sure. I think has them. Thank you. Um, uh, but, uh, but I can email them to Paul and you guys can put them up. Yeah. So, uh, the pictures are all in the book, but some of the charts and slides are not. And they were very helpful. And yeah. We missed some of them. Yeah. So, two, you just had the Japanese Minister of Defense at CSIS mm -hmm. uh, within the last week or so. And you asked a question along uh, between Japan and Korea. And I don't know that I was satisfied with the answer, but I was curious if you could worse. If you'd address that, what you thought of the Minister of Defense and whatever you think was interesting about his visit in that so, context. Um, we, uh, we, after World War II, established in Asia series of um, bilateral treaties, uh, negotiated by John Foster Dulles, most of them. Um, some political scientists and historians say it's because we were racist. We did NATO in Europe because we treated everyone as equals, but in Asia we did bilateral treaties because uh, we were racist and didn't trust you know, Asians. That's not, that's not right. 
we did bilateral treaties in Asia because um, the historical animosity between Japan and Korea, Australia and Japan, made it too difficult to create the collective security we had in Europe, where the Germans and French were moving forward. Um, and because we had actors in Asia like um, Seaman Rhee in Korea, um, Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan, who wanted to liberate mainland China and North Korea using every Japanese, Australian, American troop they could get. So to avoid entrapment, we avoided collective security and created these bilateral alliances, which made them quite resilient in their own way. The challenge we have today is um, the threat from China requires collective action. And if you learn in the War College, jointness and interoperability is deterrence. You know, being able to operate jointly and in an inoperable way with an ally dramatically can complicates the other guy's problem. First of all, they have to assume the ally's in so they can't pick you apart. Second of all, you're going to operate more effectively. Um, so in the North Korea uh, problem and in the China problem, but, but North Korea first, we need Japan, Korea, and the U.S. to be able to operate seamlessly. We would be a lot more efficient if we had a North Asia command with sub-component commanders in Japan and Korea, but we can't. We can't because Japan and Korea won't play together. Um, so this is really, really important. Um, it's also important not just because of operational efficiencies and deterrence. It's important because the, the, the ideational or the ideological or the values debate is very much part of, of the debate about who will dominate Asia. And, the, and, and our argument, our line should be, we stand for countries determining their future based on pluralistic societies and democracies in Asia, Japan, Korea, uh, countries that have democratized like Korea, they've gotten stronger. So we're on the side of self-determination, but democracy is part of it. I was going to show you a survey we did at CSAS of elites in Asia where outside of China and Singapore, overwhelmingly elites think democracy is important. So we have a, we have a lot to play with. China's line is, can't trust Japan. The high watermark of Asia diplomacy with Potsdam, Yalta, when the Japanese were the enemy. And um, so China's playing to Korea to argue Japan is the enemy. So in terms of whether Asia is about democratic values or old rivalries, and resentments, Korea is critical. And so for ideological values reasons, for operational reasons, we need Japan and Korea to play together. And it's not going well. Um, it's, it's, it's not going well. And um, Chinese think, uh, excuse me, Koreans think China's a bigger threat than Japan, but it's just too easy to get angry at the Japanese. I think the, 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 the general view in Washington and the administration and Congress, which is probably right, is that the current deterioration is mostly the Koreans' fault. But as I was suggesting to the defense minister, Japan's not off the hook. Um, and I think that's where we are. It's a big, it's one of our biggest headaches in Asia right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, speaking of uh, balance of power in the uh, Asia Pacific region, can you expand a little more about the, uh, I'm talking about rising China and Japan. You, you know Japanese history. Uh, I know you've been in Japan many times and lived there. Uh, so I, I just want to pick your brain on that. Uh, so I have, I have some idea, but yeah. I want to. Yeah. So when 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 you, uh, I'm glad you asked because this is a, a really important part of the of the, of the book, and I didn't uh, probably make it clear enough. I, I think it is not only possible but absolutely necessary to think of regional strategies, and um, far too often <laughs> our strategies towards Asia are China strategies or our policies towards the Middle East are Israel strategies or Iraq strategies. And these regions have their own kind of organic, long geopolitical ecosystem. And if you're going to shape China or Iran, you're going to need to shape the system. You need, you need to understand how they look at their own immediate backyard. The other reason it's important is because rising powers historically, including the US, you know, Bismarck's Germany, Imperial Japan, rising the British 200 some years ago, Rising powers are revisionists first in their own neighborhood, and they free ride globally. We did that. That's why the U.S. was called jackal diplomacy by the British. Japan did that. They allied with Britain and then invaded Manchuria. Uh, Germany did that. They, 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 you know, Bismarck consolidated German unification, but never took on the British. Um, and the Chinese have been free riding on the U.S. globally, but they've been using their power to try to coerce and revise Asia. That's what we did, and just ask the Mexicans. <laughs> It's a very well-established historical pattern. So we need a regional strategy, and we need to think about regions, not just China or Japan. And if you think about Asia, 
The Chinese preference is that, I, I, this is in Chinese strategic writings, it's not a secret, that we move towards a bipolar condominium, a bipolar US-China agreement on Asia, where Japan and other countries are second tier. And all the big strategic issues are, are, are decided between the US and China. And when Xi Jinping proposed to Obama a Xinjiang Dangguo Guanxi, a new model of great power relations, it was a not a global, but a regional G2, a bipolar condominium. To avoid a war, to avoid the city's trap, the US and China have to agree to solve all problems. Japan, Taiwan, sorry. That would be the Chinese preference. Chinese hegemony over Asia is not going to happen in the next 20 years. But if they can get the US to agree that China gets a veto, that weakens Japan, weakens India, weakens Korea, weakens Taiwan. That's their preference. Some people in the Obama administration and some in the Bush administration found that thesis attractive. But if you think regionally, it's a big mistake. If you think regionally, you realize that this is a region of multipolarity. It's not a Chinese-dominated region. You know, Japan, India, Korea, Indonesia, Australia, they all prefer American hegemony to Chinese. They have different views about us. Some are allies, some aren't. So, but we're not going to get them in a collective security arrangement like NATO. So we need to think in a multipolar way. We need to think about how do we enhance the capability of a Japan, of an India, of an Australia. And I would even argue with India, it's more important to us that India is powerful than, than, than that India is an ally in this, in this larger balance of power to, to get the Chinese to behave, frankly. And so, um, you know who wrote this? Nixon, in 1967, before he ran for president. He wrote that after Vietnam, we're going to preserve stability with, 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 with Japan, India, uh, Indonesia, and China. And everyone remembers this article he wrote in Foreign Affairs because he said, China. And people said, ah, that was the beginning of opening to China. And most historians said, that's it, in the context of a bilateral history with China. Nixon's insight, which Kissinger didn't get, was that we had to get this multipolarity. That's how we preserve our power. That's how Theodore Roosevelt did it. So, so I'm glad you asked, and, and I don't know if you have time for another question, but it, it merits a somewhat lengthy answer, because I think one of the strengths right now in this administration is that from state to NSC to defense, the Asia guys all get this. They all get it. The weakness we have is, I'm not sure the guy at the top does. And I think the rest of the region sees a very transactional, unpredictable. That's his style. That's what he ran on. And so we're, we've got a little out of harmony. Do you want to do anything? One more quick question. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I can do two quickly if they're fast. Thanks very much. I, I think it's a very good uh, summary of, of U.S. policy towards towards Asia from a, 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 a U.S. point of view. Right. But what I see is the situation now. This explanation is historical. What's happening now is that there are no boundaries. The Chinese now are all over the world. They're in Africa. They're in. I mean, and they're. Uh, they're doing something that the United States was unable to do. It's really beginning to develop Africans' economies, and there's no boundaries anymore. All of these alliances, mm -hmm. uh, I want you to comment on it, all of these alliances are, are, are really archaic when you have this now global Chinese outreach. So I want you to sort of put that into perspective, because there's no more boundaries in terms of military, right? It's all economic and it's all basically uh, a huge uh, supply chain. They put everyone on their own Amazon. Okay. Yep. And I think we're going to touch on Yeah, thanks. I uh, wanted to dovetail off your comment about the credibility that, that we took by the TPP. In your experience, um, do the regional leaders in Asia believe that to be uh, long-lasting? They just last the Trump administration? And Depending on where you feel the level of animosity is, are there any knock-on effects, second and third order consequences to U.S. commercial uh, interests? So on the first one, um, uh, regional strategy I think is critical, for all the reasons I said. Uh, so we need regional strategies for Asia, we need a regional strategy for Europe, with Russia, we need a regional strategy for the Middle East with Iran. If you haven't read Tom White's book, Tom White from Bookings, it's a lot shorter than mine. It's a, fairly straightforward essay. He argues the biggest threat to stability in the world today um, is regional revisionism by China, uh, Iran, and Russia. And that's the essence of the national security strategy. And I think that's right. I think that's Tom, right. Tom. Right. W-R-I-G-H-T. He's right. Um, the, um, the global challenges are very real. Um, the, the climate change is a serious problem. 
Um, proliferation is a problem. Um, but I would argue that the, the most immediate threat, or the, if you, by which I mean 10 to 20-year threat, to, um, to stability and order is coming from states and revisionist states. It's very 19th century, and these are states that think in 19th century terms. That doesn't mean the global challenges are gone. It doesn't mean there aren't global um, supply chains. Some of the biggest problems we have with China are um, defending cyberspace and outer space, which have no borders. So your, your point on no borders is right. It makes it much more challenging to develop regional strategies. It makes the regional strategies necessary, but not sufficient. But looking from Beijing, um, the by far most important um, uh, region for them, by far, is their own neighborhood. And how we shape behavior in their neighborhood is going to affect how they behave more globally. And um, Africa's interesting because China's, there's not as much of a blowback against African uh, Chinese development in Africa as there is in Asia. Um, and so um, our regional strategies dealing with China are going to be a little different by, by region. Um, you said our alliances are archaic. They're not. Um, support for U.S. alliances in the U.S. public and in our and in Australia, Japan, Korea is about the highest it's ever been. So people don't think alliances are archaic. Nobody on the Hill other than Rand Paul is, is calling for pulling out of alliances. Fortunately, he has a phone buddy right now. Um, uh, and China thinks alliances are a threat. China's strategy is fundamentally about weakening the credibility of the American alliance system in Asia. So it, alliances matter. Um, but uh, they're not enough. You need global institutions, you need global action on things like, like proliferation and climate change. It's, it's a, we need a mixed playbook and we need the, the discipline to think strategically. One of my criticisms of, of the Obama administration is early on a lot of the Obama people thought that these global issues would over, overwhelm regional problems and, and, and genuinely thought that cooperating with China on climate change would transform the relationship and make, it, make China more cooperative in Asia. Wrong. Wrong. One of my criticisms of the current administration is they got the regional competition with China right, but that doesn't mean climate change and global issues and, and institutions aren't important. They are. You have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, TPP, it's interesting. Um, the basic take in Tokyo, Canberra, the major partners, Ottawa, on TPP is that we are having a, um, a moment and we need a timeout share, but we're still basically good kids. <laughs> and uh, we're not, we don't have to be sent to the truant officer yet. Uh, they basically are holding a place for us in TPP. And the Japanese led on this with the Australians and Canadians and created what's called TPP-11, which is TPP minus the U.S. And they've negotiated it in a way that we can come back in when we get our census together. That's how they're viewing it. Um, if uh, our election yields, you know, the president gets reelected and stays protectionist, or we get a Jared, what's his name from Ohio, Jared Brown, uh, who's a protectionist on the left, then I think they'll start recalculating. We have some things going for us, uh, which people often forget about, and that's our own economy. I mean, uh, Japan was the largest investor in the U.S. for the last four years. Korean FDI in the U.S. is increasing faster at a faster rate now than in China. Um, Australian FDI in the U.S. is massive. Shale, um, innovation. Um, so we, we're kind of lucky. What's, it, was it Bismarck who said, you know, was it children? Uh, there's a special drunks and Americans. There's a special providence. I called my book uh, not by but by more than providence because it was not lucky. It was strategic design. But Bismarck is right. We're kind of lucky. Our economy now is very attractive. Um, that buys us some time. But but in, in four or five years, if we're still incapable of doing trade agreements, we will start to really find that we're losing um, losing in significant ways. Uh, uh, who makes the rules in Asia? All right. Join me in thanking Mike.